All right. Well, why don't you turn to the Italian book of the Bible? Malachi, otherwise called Malachi. Um, this is the final book of the Old Testament. And I must warn you tonight, I don't think we're going to get through the whole thing. If you're thinking, this is it, um, just a heads up on that. Next week, though. Next week. We should have pizza afterward. <laughs> Something, right? I mean, like after a Bible study, of course, feeding over a thousand. Jesus fed 5,000, so <laughs> see what Domino's can do. No, I don't know. I, I'm just kidding. Don't expect pizza. I don't know what. Well, maybe something. <laughs> well, Malachi uh, is, you know, in the, the way that they sort of structured putting the Holy Scriptures together, the early fathers and the, the way that the canon of Scripture was put together, Malachi is appropriate for the last book of the Old Testament for many reasons. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you might be a little, you know, aware that sometimes the Bible doesn't put books in chronological order. So it's, it shouldn't be, it wouldn't have been a shock if the last book of the Old Testament was something from another time, you know, outside of the line of things. But it just so happens that Malachi is not only fitting spiritually to be the last book of the Old Testament, but it's also chronologically the last book of the Old Testament in the time frame. It sort of ends the Old Testament period, and then we have kind of a silent section called the intertestamental period, um, and uh, we'll kind of talk about that. The time period really of this is somewhere probably around 430 BC is uh, some of the dating that some would give to the book of Malachi. Now, there's a bit of a time frame here, just, just so we can kind of be up to speed. The timeline, um, you know, to Malachi sort of starts, if you would, if, if, if we're kind of thinking about the, the prophets uh, that we've been in the last couple, <laughs> several years now. You know, one of the biggest things is, you know, 586 BC when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. And that was kind of a huge mark in the Old Testament. But then the time right line kind of runs on and there's several events that kind of keep piling up. Um, after, you know, the... Uh, the breaking up of Jerusalem and the crushing of the temple and all that. Then there was the return. And, and those are, you can kind of go with a bunch of different dates on when it was actually the re ultimate return. There were sort of waves of return, even as there were waves uh, as people exited and left um, to go to Babylon. Um, they, they came in waves, but 538 is kind of your general term there or time for the return and the starting to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Another big date on the timeline would be 515 BC when the temple would be finished. Remember Zerubbabel's temple? Um, that was happening. And then, if, um, you know, Ezra, the book of Ezra, and Ezra was about 458 BC. Nehemiah was a contemporary of Ezra, uh, 445 BC was Nehemiah. And so that, and, and these are the, some of the last guys we hear from, you know, in the Old Testament, some of the later dudes in the Old Testament, um, you know, we got Ezra and Nehemiah, and then that leaves us with Malachi's prophecy right here in our book um, around 430 BC. And this is, this is a time period um, where it's, it's about, you know, um, a little less than a hundred years now after the temple's been rebuilt, you know, it's funny when you think about time frames and stuff. Think about, you know, a hundred years ago. Um, you know, there, there may have been a few guys alive, uh, I don't know, uh, that, that had seen the temple finished. 
that were also alive during Malachi's time, but it's pretty close to 100 years when that happened and Malachi gives us his prophecy. So the new temple's almost 100 years old, um, but the problem in Malachi's time is worship had become compulsory, mundane, and it wasn't a get to, it was a got to. Um, and the Jews sort of despised having to go to the temple and make sacrifice and their attitude was horrible and it was a really bad time period. And by the way, it, it's, it's interesting because there was at least societal pressure for people to at least go and do the temple worship. Um, but I'm not sure that's a good thing. You know, I look at what's going on in our culture today and if you look at all the recent studies and surveys and stuff, people are bailing out of church left and right, as they say, and it's funny, it's, it's a little weird because in our little world here at Athey Creek, we see people piling into church and, um, and that's a good thing. We love seeing that, but I think that's not really what's going on in much of the world, let alone the United States. As it turns out, churches are closing their doors. That's, that's so sad to me to see so many churches closing their doors, churches that were once piling over with people and now um, not so much. And what's, what's the re reason for that? I, I think man, there, are, there are many reasons I could think about, but one is the Bible says in the last days there would be a great um, falling away as uh, 2 Thessalonians puts it. But if you actually take a look at um, that word falling away in the Greek, it's apostasy or apostasia in the Greek. And so we're seeing sort of an apostasy uh, in the church, and that's a, a departing. And there was a departing from the word of God. And I think the further churches get away from the word of God and doing what the Bible tells us to do, the more people are like, yeah, church, whatever. Um, have you ever noticed, just something to and, and tuck away, if you're a part of a church that's very uh, into, like passionately being into the Bible, into God's word, and wondering what does God's word actually say, that's usually a group of people that are very zealous to really have, it's not a got to, it's a get to. Man, we get to go to church this Sunday. We get to study the word. I'm, I'm talking to the Wednesday nighters here who are saying, man, we get to go to a middle week, a Wednesday night Bible study. Um, there's a lot of people who would think you're crazy. Why would you go to church in midweek? Uh, that was, we, we stopped doing that in the 1950s. You know, people, people, our culture, we, do you remember, some of you are old enough to remember, because right when I was a child uh, in my football team, that was when they were starting to put sports on Wednesday nights. And uh, some of us, we had to tell our coaches, coach, I'm either going to play football or I'm not. But Wednesday night is non-negotiable. I go to church on Wednesday night. And, and our coaches at, at that time, back in the eighties, they were like, oh brother, you know, uh, what, a, what a waste of time. And uh, okay, I guess, but you may not start this week. Like there was, there was threats like that from our coaches. You may not start this, even though I started both ways uh, and special teams from freshman all the way through senior. They did make that threat once or twice. That, well, if you don't go on Wednesday night practice, then you may not start. Um, of course, we were trying to sign up our cheerleaders. We didn't have enough guys and girls <laughs> for our little podunk team. Uh, so I got to start. Anyway, by the way, there's, there's some great stories there. Um, uh, uh, one of our um, former pastors here, uh, he's li now he's living in Arizona, but Bryn uh, was a pro soccer player and went, played for the Timbers and stuff. And uh, that's why I always used to make fun of soccer because we had a couple pros here at the church and I like making fun of that communist sport. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, but it, was, it was actually funny. But, um, but one thing I loved about Bryn and John Micah, both college level soccer players, uh, when they were in high school, I remember they had to make that decision. And I, I think it was John Micah from Cutlass, the singer, in, he was, he was uh, the lead singer of Cutlass, also the ring bearer in Debbie and my wedding. 
it's a long story. Um, but, but I remember he uh, told his coaches the same thing. You know, I, I got to go to church on Wednesday night. And Bryn did too. And these, these two guys that were like the star players of their team, it was like, you could, it was just really cool to see how there were kids kind of standing up. Well, long gone are those days. Now, don't, people don't even protest even slightly. They're just kind of like, oh, soccer definitely is more important than Wednesday night Bible study. And churches just started canceling their midweek studies. And they caved. Uh, prayer, prayer study or prayer meeting or Bible study, whatever the churches used to do, they're long gone. When I tell pastors that we still do a Wednesday night, the first thing they ask me, does anybody go? That's what they ask me, seriously. Like who attends? And I'm like, I don't know, but it's full. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's great. Like that's a great thing. And I, I feel like in some ways, one of the things that when a church gets further and further away from just doing what the scriptures tells us to do, then we lose our effectiveness. And that's, that's sadly, I think, what's happening to a lot of churches in America. They, they've allowed themselves to move into all kinds of different things, getting away from the word, becoming sort of woke a little bit. I've seen a lot of wokeism creep into the churches, which that's killed a lot of them. In the last two years, we've seen churches just go down and they don't know what happened. They're like, well, we don't know what's going on. And I just wanna say, stop being woke. Take critical, or take white fragility off your recommended reading on your front of your website. Um, that'll help you. Uh, like, just get back to scripture and get away from some of the other, you know, uh, things that are happening in the church. But I digress. That's where the people of Malachi's time were. They were just totally going through the motions. They had horrible attitudes and they didn't want to go to the temple. But because of who they were, they were Jews in Jerusalem. They kind of felt compelled to go, well, we'll go, whatever. And this is kind of where their heart is. And now God is going to have this heavy duty burden that's gonna come against these people, um, a heavy burdensome book that we have before us. And, um, and it's interesting because um, as the people are giving God their second and third and fourth, fourth best, they become lethargic. And, and now Malachi's gonna deal with intermarrying of pagans and Jews, something the Jews weren't supposed to do. Uh, he's gonna deal with the topic of divorce. Uh, Malachi's gonna talk about um, you know, defilement of the priesthood. The priests became sort of, you know, just just hirelings, they could care less about God. They were just there sort of in office. And by the way, that's what led us to the New Testament period when you know, you got, by that time, you got Caiaphas, the high priest, who was totally whacked and could care less about God. Um, this is, Malachi's era is what was leading up to that uh, time when Christ would come, neglecting the tithe and the offering, the people weren't uh, giving to the Lord at all, and oppression of the poor. These are the things that are uh, the very uh, similar pro problems, by the way, of Ezra's time when we read the message of Ezra. Um, and so how long does it take a nation? That's an interesting question. How long does it take a nation to fall away from the Lord? You know, um, when you look at these Jews, it's like a little, little less than 100 years because there was a bit of a revival around 515 when the temple was restored. But the sad thing is, uh, by the time Malachi comes on the scene, that revival had pretty much died off. You know, America, when we were a baby nation, and I'm, um, I'm telling you, you know, our, our history, even before 1776, um, we became a horribly pagan and brutal bad nation for a while. There was an enlightenment period, you know, maybe you remember reading about Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it's funny, the same churches that are failing today, they sort of go, yeah, that horrible fire and brimstone sermon. No, that, that sermon actually woke up a whole nation. 
that was totally steeped in sinful behavior. People don't realize before 7876, we lost some of that. Like, you know, we went from the Puritans and Thanksgiving and all that stuff to a kind of a season, you know, you know, 350 years ago or whatever, where there was just kind of horrible stuff going on in the, Amer- new, the, new, the new America. But by the time, you know, the, new, the, the, the first enlightenment happened, man, people turned to the Lord. And that's what really sparked some of this, um, you know, beginnings of our country. And so now here we are, 246 years old, and, and we're denying that our Constitution and our Bill of Rights and our, you know, uh, we, we don't realize that it was very much steered by godly men who loved the Lord um, and believed in God. And uh, man, I hope you understand, don't listen to these college professors say they were just a bunch of deists who didn't believe in God or they believed in God, but not Jesus. And they weren't really Christians and all this stuff. Man, all you gotta do is read your history books. Um, and uh, one of my, one of my, I like wall builders and David Barton's work. He, he's got all the, he's got all the, you know, books. He's actually purchased and made a library of the original handwriting of a lot of these guys just to preserve them because, because there's a group of people in America that want to erase that part of our history. And, and he's doing whatever he can to try to save uh, some of the things those guys said. But basically, America was built on godly principles and it's taken us uh, 246 years to get to where, well, Man, we've lost our minds. I think we are really where the people of Malachi were, maybe even worse. Um, That's a strong statement, but the things we're seeing in our world today, even here in Portland area, we're seeing, you know, abortion, we're seeing sexual grooming of children right in front of our faces and the world applauding that. We're watching that happen today. Um, We're seeing gender ideology go crazy and basically um, you know, sin on, on sin. We can just keep talking about all the things we're embracing. Um, but boiling it down to this, you know, we've exchanged God and his holy word for really our own God of self. Like we've made ourselves the God. We are the ones who are in charge and know what's good and bad. And we've forsaken as a nation. No longer can we say in God, we trust. We might as well just change and say in myself, I trust. Because that's, the, that's really what's going on in America. The answer for any fallen country is the Lord. Malachi uh, is gonna uh, deal with this. Now, the way Malachi deals with it is kind of powerful and important, and, and it's really something, it's almost heartbreaking. This, I find the book of Malachi um, just kind of sad, maybe because it's the times we're living and, and I see the, the uh, parallels, but Malachi, the book, will feel more like looking into a mirror than looking into a history book in some ways. That's the hard part of Malachi uh, as far as uh, our nation goes. Um, Interesting few sideline things before we dive in. Malachi, the name means messenger, uh, the the Hebrew word, and um, um, my messenger. So uh, it could be a guy um, by the name of Malachi, which is in my opinion probable, but some scholars say Malachi was actually written by Ezra and uh, called himself Malachi as the messenger of God. Uh, sort of like um, when I say Pastor Brett, it would be more like a, a, a title than it would be more than, than uh, his personal name. There's debate on that about who, but nonetheless, it's still the messenger. That's, that's, um, that's a good word, whether it's Malachi's name or it's just a, a, you know, a writer's name or whatever that Malachi uses. Um, but I wouldn't argue on that thing. Uh, who cares? It, it's like when you get your UPS or your Amazon delivery, do you care what the name of the deliverer is? Uh, you're like, you know, you're interested in what's in the package. Some of you probably care about the, uh, by the way, uh, when it comes to messengers, people are starting to care who the messenger really is. 
Like, uh, do you, how many of you guys order food and have it brought to your house? Anybody? See, you guys, you guys are not so smart. I'm just telling you. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Debbie and I do that. We do that too. But I, I wanted to show you a study that'll ruin you forever. Um, <laughs> study finds uh, re, a website. Uh, eight in 10 delivery workers admit to eating a customer's food. <laughs> have you ever wondered what happened to that slice of pizza? It's like, it looks like a Pac-Man, not a pizza. Um, one in four drivers confess that they've um, uh, uh, actually like spat or something in someone's food. Um, one in 10 of, dr of the drivers uh, have urinated on a customer's home. Now the article goes on why, because there's this thing uh, where they, I think they call it tip something or other tip luring or something, where you can put your tip number in and, and the driver sees the tip and then you deliver the food and then you remove the tip number. So don't be surprised if your house gets peed on at that point. Uh, uh, this, they, they're not, that doesn't make them too happy. Now, if you're a driver, I'm sure you're not the ones doing this. Uh, I understand that, but, but uh, I don't know why I went off onto that. No, it's because, it's because Malachi is the messenger and we don't, we don't really know much about Malachi, but it's not really about the messenger, it's about the message that God gives and that's what we care. But the message that he's gonna give um, is, is uh, quite uh, you know, heavy. Um, uh, and, and, uh, you know, basically, um, you know, one thing about the messenger, by the way, you and I are called to be the messengers as well. I hope you understand that. Um, but you might say, but Brett, I'm a sinner. Uh, how can I be the messenger? Um, and I think sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that God's messengers are sinless or they have to be pristine. Um, and if that were the case, none of us would qualify, especially me. Or even Paul the Apostle, remember Paul made his argument, I am the chiefest of sinners. I do the things I don't wanna do. I don't do the things I do wanna do. See, and I love that Paul tells us that because he looks pretty pristine to me as a Pharisee of all Pharisees. But I also remember that he knew he was a sinner and yet he was still the messenger God used. And the Lord chooses to use the weak and the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Um, but the Lord can still use us in spite of our shortcomings. I hope you understand that. Because the Lord wants you and me to be the me messenger. So he starts off the book with a heavy word. Let's, let's see, verse one, chapter one. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, the word burden there, in, if you look it up in the Hebrew dictionary, it's masa, which um, is a message of rebuke rather than comfort. Uh, the, the definition actually goes on. It says, ominous in judgment and utterance, chiefly of doom. <laughs> so this is what we're in for. You guys ready for some doom? Uh, here it is, uh, Malachi, the burden, the doom upon Israel. Now, some of you might protest and say, Brett, why would Malachi be talking to Israel? Israel has been gone for hundreds of years. They were de destroyed by the Assyrians, never to be heard from to again. And that's the narrative you'll hear out there from some people. Can I tell you why that narrative is wrong? Um, there's a whole group out there, by the way, and several groups. And some of the cults like to talk about the lost tribes of Israel. And I would warn you about those groups. Um, you know, whether it's the uh, Jehovah's Witness who thinks they're the 144,000 of Revelation 7, that thinks they're part of the lost tribes of Israel, um, or if the Mormons think that it's the Incas that's the lost tribes of Israel, they, they kind of have that claim. If you look in Mormonism faith, uh, some of you Mormons are like, I never heard that. Of course you didn't, because it's crazy. Uh, and uh, the Mormons don't talk about that, but look it up. You can find the writings of the old Mormons uh, that write all about this stuff. 
Um, but there are cults that kind of claim to be the lost tribes of Israel. Where did that come from? Well, if you remember back, um, you know, in the days of Jeroboam, remember Jeroboam, Rehoboam, Rehoboam, Jeroboam? They were the kings of, of, of Judah and Israel. Judah was in the south, Israel was in the north. The, the 12 tribes split, two tribes in the south, 10 tribes in the north, and a civil war. That civil war split up Israel and Judah, and they were enemies. Not long after David, only a few generations after David was king in Jerusalem, they split up into two kingdoms. Well, Jeroboam there in 1 Kings 12, do you remember what he did? Um, what he did is one of the things, he, he was worried that the Jews that lived in his northern Israel, as it was called, um, he was worried that the, the Jews would go down and do their you know, yearly trek to Jerusalem for you know, the feasts and festivals and that he would lose his people to the worshiping of God in Jerusalem. So Jeroboam in 1 Kings 12, 28, remember what he did? He made these little miniature places of worship. Hey, forget going down to Jerusalem like God's word says, but hey, let's make places of worship. Well, what are we gonna worship? I got an idea, golden calves. Yeah, that's a good idea. And so they made two places, uh, Bethel and Dan, which is um, uh, you know the, up in the Northern region, uh, or Laish is the ancient word for Dan. But they made the two golden calf centers. And, and one thing that's interesting, when I take groups to Israel, I love going to Tel Dan because there's a place you can kind of hike through this ancient ar archeological ruin of a city. It's, and it's got a river flowing through it. It's an amazing place, beautiful, really. Um, but when you get to the center of the city, there's an altar that's there and it's where they worshiped this golden calf of Jeroboam. It's the very place we know for sure. It's the very place where that happened. Um, and that's where the north, they lost their marbles. The northern tribes of Israel, the 10 tribes. Now, this is where everybody gets wacko on this. When the Assyrians came and conquered the northern tribes, that was, a, you know, uh, uh, like 150 years or whatever before the Babylonians crushed the southern tribe of Judah. But, so the Assyrians just took, and remember they put fish hooks in their mouths and they dragged them up into the north and stuff like that. But there's this notion that well, all the Jews were taken up there, so the, all those tribes were lost. But it's not true, and I'll tell you why. If you read the Bible's narrative, what happened with Jeroboam, when Jeroboam pulled the trigger on this wacko worship of his little golden calves, a ton of the Jews in the north said, we can't do this. We're not gonna be pagans and worship a golden calf. So they made their way back to Jerusalem and they moved to Judah and they were no longer part of the Northern Kingdom. And there were a bunch of people from all the different tribes that moved back down to Jerusalem. So the Northern tribes were wiped out by the Assyrians, but not all the tribes were wiped out by the Syrians because a bunch of those tribes came to the south. Are you guys with me on that? Um, and since then, you know, over hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years, of course, the, the Jews and those tribes, the, you know, the tribes of Levi and Asher and Reuben and Gad and Manasseh and all those other tribes, they started to reproduce and have families and children. Now it is true, by the way, most Jews have no idea what tribe they're a part of today which helps with this whole lost tribe narrative. But it doesn't mean, does God have any problem knowing which tribe a Jewish person's from? No, God will sort them out, he knows that. And he's gonna sort them out, by the way, in uh, Revelation chapter seven, it's gonna happen. But um, there's only a few tribes that kinda know. If, uh, like for example, I have a buddy, Rick Cohen, he's a good friend of mine, uh, and he's a, a Jew, and we always called him Rabbi Rick because um, he's actually, uh, but the last name Cohen, we know what tribe he was from. Like that's one of the, the guys that you know, he was a Levite because the Levites were always, uh, the Cohens were always part of the Levite tribe, which is kind of interesting. If you know a Cohen, you can say, hey man, you're like a priest, uh, you know, and, and really freak him out. But um, 
But all that to say that there's no such thing as lost tribes. And I want you to know that because books have been written, uh, cults have been started, and all kinds of crazy enough about this dividing of the lost tribes of Israel. And the reason I go into all that is because some people say, see, Malachi doesn't know what he's talking about because look, he says the, the Lord is speaking to Israel by Malachi. But one of the things we need to remember, Israel was the name of the northern tribes that rebelled against the southern two tribes, but we're still calling them Israel. And it's because God gave that name to Jacob, remember? When he wrestled with God at Peniel, uh, you know, and, and touched his hip and you know, his hip went out of socket, that whole story. So Israel's always called Israel by God, whether they're lost tribes or not, of course they weren't, but um, that's, that's one of the protests you'll hear sometimes. Uh, Israel was long gone by the time you know, Malachi wrote this, but don't be stumbled by st such stupidity. There's people that try to make big deals out of that. Well, um, so uh, we see this now, um, and now we come to kind of the first section, uh, and this is sort of the debate that's gonna banter back and forth between God and the people of Israel. And it's really heartbreaking. Check this out. So the first section we're going to call verses two through five, the denying of God's love. This is the first part of their bad condition of the people of Malachi's time, the, deni the denying of God's love. And we pick it up in verse two. He says, I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet you say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob and I hated Esau. And I laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down and they shall call them uh, the border of the wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. The Lord is talking about several things that really are springboards into some really interesting discussions. You know, um, the Lord says, man, I loved you guys. And the people are like, when did you love us? Uh, boy, does that sound like a grateful bunch of people? Uh, when did you show us love? What, what have you done for us lately? You know, they might've said. Um, now, it's easy to say because they're living large right now. During Malachi's time, they've got their temple built. Their houses are all comfy. They, they really are in somewhat uh, freedom from enemies at this point. Um, um, and, and isn't it funny, though, that's usually when you start to doubt God, is when you're living in times of prosperity, doing your own thing and don't have a real need for God. You're not in desperate need, so you're not crying out to God. It's in prosperity you forget God. And that's where the people were. Um, I, I love you. Where did you love us, God? That, this is the people's heart. That's where they're at. And then the Lord says, man, I have loved you. Think about it. I, I chose Jacob. Remember, he's the guy that changed the name from Jacob to Israel. And Esau have I hated. Um, uh, and, and, and isn't it interesting? You know, Romans uh, talks about this, you know, about this idea of the Lord choosing us. Election is an interesting part of, of the discussion here. God chose the Jews over the, the descendants of Esau. Now the Esau descendants, does anybody remember their name? The Edomites, and they're the ones mentioned here. And, and it's kind of important to know what, what, what's going on with these guys. Um, the Lord says, I, I'm, I'm gonna crush them. So I loved you because I didn't crush you. Well, that's not loving. No, it really is, it is. The Lord should have crushed the whole world. We're all sinners, we all deserve death and, and hell. 
but the Lord loves the Jews. We're huge sinners and the Lord still loves us. It reminds me of Romans 5, 8, where we're told by Paul the apostle, but God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he says, you know, he loved Jacob and he hated Esau. And this is where Paul quoted from that. You know, the Lord says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Um, who would have you chosen, by the way, between those two people? Uh, I always laugh at that because I'm pretty sure for me, I can just can't speak for you, but for me, I would have chosen Esau. Jacob was a smooth, mischievous, lying, sinister little guy who liked to be in the kitchen cooking. Esau was a mighty hunter and he's a man's man and he liked to eat lots of food and he killed things. I like that. I'm sorry, I just do. You got, you know, uh, you know, you got Martha Stewart living and you got Field and Stream, kind of the two different kinds of people here. But why would God choose Jacob over Esau? And, and there's an interesting whole biblical theme that goes throughout the Bible, but Esau kind of uh, is a symbol of the carnal man. Um, but, but if you would, Jacob's the one who was chosen, elected. Um, this reminds me of Romans also after, um, you know, Romans talks a lot about this, by the way. Um, in Romans 8, 29 through 31, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them also he called, um, and whom he called, them he also justified. Remember justifications, just as if you'd never sinned at all. Um, so he justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, then who can be against us? Um, how does that work? How does God choose us? Or did we actually choose him? Um, and, and this is where people get really hung up, especially the very logic excuse me, very logical people are like, this doesn't work out mathematically, Brett. Did you choose God or did God choose you? And I say, yes. Uh, but you're like, that doesn't work. But this is where I'm so thankful for God. He's bigger than our math. Do you understand that? If God were small enough to figure out, small enough to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. And God is way bigger than that. Um, and so people get stumbled on this. Did, did Esau choose to go against God or did God choose to reject him? And he chose, you know, and people get all, all stopped on this. I, one of my favorite old writers and pastors uh, in 1935, H.A. Ironside um, wrote about this, uh, this idea of predestination and divine election. And um, uh, he was quite the, the, the guy, you know, and I liked a lot of the stuff he wrote. But let me read to you what this, this old feller said about this divine, did God choose us or did he choose, or, or, or did, he, did he choose us or did we choose him? Um, and here's what he said. It's called, this, is, this has become a, a thing, what he says here. They call it Ironside's door is what they call this. Let me read it. Here is a vast hope, host of people hurrying down the broad road with their minds fixed upon their sins. And one stands calling their attention to yonder door, the entrance into the narrow way that leads to eternal. Um, on its plainly depicted text, it says on this door, whosoever will, let him come. Every man is invited, no one needs hesitate. Some may say, well, I may not be of the elect and so it would be useless for me to endeavor to come for the door will not open for me. But God's invitation is absolutely sincere. It is addressed to every man, whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely, Revelation twenty-two seventeen. 
So I am going inside. I will accept the invitation. I will enter that door. And he presses his way in and it shuts behind him. And as he turns about, he finds written on the inside of the door, the words chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. What? He says, had God in his heart fixed on me before ever the world came into being? Yes, but he could not find it out until he got inside of the door. I like that. It's, it's the way it happened. Like it's a good way of thinking about it. I know it doesn't work out in our logic with time and space and our little miniature dimensions compared to what God knows, but, um, but the Lord chooses uh, who he wants to, divine election, predestination. Now, some of you might protest and say, I feel sorry for Esau. Why didn't God choose him? Someday when we see the Lord, we'll understand, oh, God knew exactly what he's doing. Good choice, Lord. We will commend him and say, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. That's what we will say about everything. Um, but um, if you're worried, if you're sitting in this chair, well, what if I'm not chosen by God? There's only one way to find out. So it's really actually pretty simple. It's like Ironside's door. Do you, do you go in or you don't? So if you're sitting there saying, you know, if you're watching online, you're saying, well, you know, I just don't know about becoming a Christian. And I don't know if I want to pull the trigger on that because Christians are weird or whatever dumb excuses there are why you would never want to go through the door. Um, then you probably aren't chosen. But if you repent of your sins and say, oh Lord, I'm a sinner. I do acknowledge my sins before you. And I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and rose from the grave. And then you take and accept salvation from Christ. Guess what? You're chosen. You walk in and you realize, man, the Lord chose you from before the foundations of the, of the earth. And that's what the Bible says about that. If you go on in Romans uh, chapter nine, verse 13, this is where he quotes from, you know, Malachi. Romans 9, 13 through 18. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. But what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor him that runneth, but of God that shows mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for the same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he hath mercy, and on whom he will, he hardeneth. And Pharaoh is another example of that in the Bible. Nine times in the story of Pharaoh in Exodus, it says that, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then nine other times it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Which one was it? The answer? Yes. That's the idea with divine election. God is sovereign. He chooses, he elects, and that's sure. Um, and God can do whatever he wants. And if you say, well, God, you're not fair, then who are you to reply against God? That's what Paul would say. Should the clay talk to the potter and say, why are you making me thus? That's the kind of example Paul the apostle gave. Like, does the, the, the potter have power over the clay? Yes. And that's what the argument. Um, now, election makes some people um, bummed and worried. Doesn't worry me at all. Don't be afraid of the scripture, you know, Esau have I hated. Uh, just marvel at the phrase, Jacob have I loved. See, that's why I'm, I'm amazed that God chose Jacob because he was such an unchoosable guy. And at first I didn't like that, should have chose Esau, Cabela's, come on, choose Esau. But the Lord says, no, I'm gonna choose the one that is kind of slimy and sneaky and guess what? That should make you feel comforted. 
See, election, when I realize what election really is, when I really think it through, it makes me less of a worrier and more of a worshiper. When I really understand divine election, I think, wow, Lord, to choose a knucklehead like me, I just worship your name. You're, you're so kind and compassionate uh, that, that I get to be part of the chosen. Um, so I love this idea of, of election versus, you know, free will and, and stuff like that. So I believe in both. Divine election, yes, you also have free will to choose. And uh, it's not a conflict. I don't believe that at all. So we have number one here, verses two through five, the denying of God's love. Uh, when have you loved us? And by the way, we could, we could number the ways that God loved Israel. We could talk about the deliverance out of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea. Was that a loving thing for God to do? Um, I think so. I think that was pretty loving to part the Red Sea and destroy Pharaoh's army. What about starving in the wilderness? Um, did the Lord love them? Yes. They were hungry and all they had to do is wake up in their tent and then reach outside the tent door and grab manna off the ground. They didn't have to stand in line at Safeway. Um, like they, they got to eat food. It was, um, and, and yet, you know, with the Lord loving them throughout the whole Bible, you know, uh, they wanted meat. And so God sent quail and God over throughout the history of Israel, God loved them and provided for them and protected them and wiped out their enemies over and over and over again. But the Jews rebelled against God. Now in Malachi's time, whatever good thing have you done for us? When did you love us, God? And sadly, that's the condition of much of Israel today. Much of Israel, as I've brought out, I even showed you, I think in one of the recent studies, 70% of the population of Jews in Israel are uh, atheists. That's an amazing thing. By the way, whatever happened to the Edomites, since that's part of the thing here in verses uh, two through five, um, did you know they're no longer? The Edomites don't really exist anymore. Um, Edomites, the, the descendants of Esau, they went to Edom, which the land means red, which is interesting because Esau was uh, called red also, but Edom was the red land. And the reason it's called red, red over there is because of the red sandstone. So when you see my pictures that I've shown you of Petra and how everything looks kind of red, that's why it's called Edom. And that's where the Edomites lived. That's where Esau lived in the red land of Moab, which is modern day Jordan today. So the Edomites, what happened to them? Well, in 450 BC, not much further away from Malachi's time, like it was almost the same time, God allowed the Edomites to be totally wiped out by a group called the Nabataeans. And the Nabataeans, by the way, are the ones that carved all the fancy stuff in Petra. They're the, they're the ancient people group that went and carved the facades in, the, in Petra, um, which is an amazing thing. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's, if you're ever in that region of the world, you gotta go see Petra. You know, it's a 13 mile hike that we do in the morning. We go from the hotel, right out the doorstep of the hotel, walk, and we start walking 13 miles to the end where the monastery is, and then all the way back. And all the way, there's these carved, beautiful, uh, facades that the Nabataeans, uh, Colosseum, uh, tombs, cisterns. It's an amazing place. Uh, but those people crushed the Edomites never to be heard from again. Um, so after going his own way, being rebellious against God, uh, God demonstrated his love, preserving Israel, but also judging Esau. That's kind of the idea. Um, uh, by the way, um, you know, I wonder if the Lord loves you and you question that. Does the Lord really love me? And, and remember, I told you it was in times of prosperity when people questioned that the most. But I, I wonder, even if you aren't as well off as someone next to you, maybe you're like, oh, I don't have as fancy of a car, uh, or I don't live in as fancy of a house as those people. Why doesn't God love me the way we are? Maybe the Lord keeping you poor is his demonstration of love for you. 
Um, have you ever thought about that, like material wealth? When I've been to Africa, some of my African friends in Ouagadougou, pray for the people in Burkina Faso, by the way, the Islamic uh, terrorists are ran, running through that country. There was just a group of 50 Burkina Faso people, Christians, who were just slaughtered by um, you know, Islamic uh, terrorists in Burkina Faso. Um, but when, I, when I've been over there, I've been there three times to that particular country. And, um, but it, it, it's interesting because the African church there knows that wealth is maybe a curse for Americans. You know, they look at our fancy houses and churches and cars and they, in some ways they kind of wish they could have that too. But they also have told me, Brett, we understand. That's a, like a temptation. And they understand what the Bible says. Like in Matthew 19, 24, Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. So maybe the most loving thing God can do is make you poor or in poverty. Um, Is it the love of the Lord that we're so well off as Americans or is it actually a curse against our country? Uh, Being distracted of what actually matters. That's the condition of the people in Malachi's time. They're wealthy, but they're distracted with their wealth. Um, Their homes are dialed in, they're living securely, their vineyards are being blessed, the Bible says, Yet they're, all the while they're saying, where has God loved us? As they're sitting, living large, drinking their wine and living securely. So it's not a sin to be material blessed, by the way. It's, it's, it's when you focus on that and make that, make that sort of your thing. Um, it's like that verse that's so often misquoted. You know, like from 1 Timothy 6, they always say, For money is the root of all evil, they say. But they forget the first part. It's not money that's the root of all evil. It's for the love of money. That's the way the whole verse goes, is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That's really the condition of Malachi's time. And that's why they're denying the the love of God. Even though they're wealthy, where have you loved us? I don't have a, you know, um, you know, everything I have is, you know, something I've made or I built and they've taken credit for that. Um, um, but man, I love that when, when you um, actually know the love of Christ. Um, there was actually a story of a monk who um, was trying to, he felt like his community didn't understand the love of Christ. And so he decided to do a kind of a unique sermon on a dark, gloomy day. They came into the cathedral and there was only one candle lit. All the other candles were not lit. And the people came in like, what's the deal? It's so dark in here, you can barely see. And then the monk came out to do his sermon and what he did is he came and got the candle and then he walked and then he got up on a ladder that he had put there before the service that climbed up to the crucifixion that they had hanging on the wall. And then the monk just slowly, without saying a word, just took the candle and held it up to the right hand where the nail was in his hand. And then the left hand and the nail in his hand and then the crown of thorns. And he just moved the candle around to the wounds of Christ. And then he, he put the candle down after about, you know, 10 minutes of just kind of looking at Christ's body. And then he said, you're dismissed. And I guess it moved the town. The whole town was moved to realize that that was the love of Christ. His love was demonstrated on the cross. Um, if you ever start doubting the love of God, like the people here denying the, the love of God, repent from that and just look to the cross and see what, what, what has God done for you? The answer, everything. He's done everything. Well, um, it, it, now we come to the second section. Um, we've got number, number one, the denying of God's love. Number two, the defiling of God's table. Uh, and that's uh, verses uh, six, uh, really through 14. Um, and here we go, verse six. It says, 
A son honoreth his father and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name, and you say, where have we despised thy name? See, these are the, this is the banter back and forth between God and the people of Israel. The first one, I've loved you. Where have we seen you love us? And then now the Lord says, now you, you, you've actually defiled the table of God. You've defiled, you, you know, you've despised my name. And they say, where would we despise your name? This is just their attitude demonstrated here. But, you know, the Lord makes reasonable discussion. He says, man, sons honor their fathers. Employees sort of honor their employers and even have a healthy fear of them. Um, and, and why would you not have that honor and fear of me? The Lord would say, well, where have we despised your name? They said, and then the Lord responds in verses seven through nine. He says, you offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And you say, where have we polluted thee? in that you say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? <clears throat> and if you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it now to thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? And now I pray you beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means Will he regard your persons, saith the Lord of hosts? Interesting thing that's going on here. Now, when it says here, you, you offer polluted bread. When they bring the table of showbread, bread to the table in the holy place, it's old, crusty, stale bread. They, they basically eat the good stuff themselves. And then instead of making a fresh batch, they just bring a bunch of old, crusty bread and put it on the table. So here's God's bread. At least we didn't have to eat it. That's what they're saying. And then also when it says in verse eight, you offer the blind the lame and the sick. It's talking about animals. You know, like they bring a blind, you know, wounded lamb that's scarred from, you know, trouble and just kind of the spotted up, crushed up lamb that's like, yeah, we don't want to eat that one. So let's bring it to the temple and offer it to the Lord. And the Lord just says, man, would you, would you bring this lamb? He says in verse nine, like, would you bring that, um, uh, pardon me, verse eight, is, it, it, would you offer this to the governor of your town? Like, or would you get the nice one for the governor? Interesting, when they bring their offering and the animals, it'd be blemished, spotted, and, 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 and spoiled. And he's making the case, man, you have the governor to your house, you'd, you'd bust out the good stuff, but with me, you're giving me the trash. And this is what we can do. It's the same thing. We're guilty of the same thing. I'm reminded of what Colossians 3, 23 and 24 declares there. You know, Paul says, and whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. When they came to worship, they came with their junk. I wonder if we half-heartedly come to worship, you and I. You know, we come and say, ah, oh, you know, um, do we behave better in front of famous people or important people than we do at church on a Sunday morning? Do we prepare our hearts and attitudes for the hot date you have on Friday night more than you prepare your heart and your attitude for when you come before the Lord on a Sunday or a Wednesday night or when you go in your morning devos? You see, that's the problem. Um, that's human nature to sort of do the half-hearted worship thing and sort of give God your leftovers. Um, you know, um, 
we, we can also come to church sort of with a cynical attitude. That's kind of what happens here when it says, you know, they, des- they despised his name. And they say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. Like that's what, that was their attitude of that day. Um, and sometimes, you know, people, we care more about what man thinks than what God actually thinks. Um, some, some people struggle with what, be, what, what people think of them. Like, um, I wonder, and I don't mean to be kind of brutal on this one, but, you know, we sing songs, lift up your hands in the sanctuary, bless the Lord, you know. Um, a lot of our songs, they sing, lift your hands. And I have to say, um, trying not to be judgmental as a pastor, but, you know, Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. But in the same chapter, he says, but you'll know them by their fruit. So in other words, you should kind of notice whether it's good fruit or bad fruit. And especially as a under shepherd, as a pastor, I do care about this congregation. So I do kind of watch and observe some of the behaviors of church attendees. And sometimes I'm really blessed and sometimes I'm really kind of bummed. I'm just gonna be honest with you. I'm bummed when I see um, people come to church and they're more into their, you know, uh, you know, their games or their, letting their kids wear the hoodie and just slouch in the corner. My dad would have killed me because that was not the posture of worship. The posture of worship is to come, you know, and attentive and involved and listening and, you know, and, and uh, I, I notice there's kind of a thing where parents just don't care about that anymore. Um, so not, not all parents, but there are some, I'm kind of shocked. Brett, you don't understand, I can't even get my kid into church. Uh, you, should have, you should make that happen, especially if you're a parent of, of young kids, there's ways to teach them to, to do the right thing, come with the right attitude. Um, you know, uh, people come with sort of an attitude. So we sing about lifting hands, like I was talking about earlier, and we'll sing that song on a Sunday morning. Uh, you know, we'll sing, and, and the, the song boldly declares, uh, I'm gonna lift up my hands to the Lord. And, and there's maybe three of you or four of you that I'll see, oh wow, there's, there's a few people actually doing what they're singing. Is that judgmental? Uh, it's actually biblical. Psalm 134 verse two says this, lift up your hands, is this hard verse to, you could memorize this right now. <laughs> Psalm 134 verse two, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. The end. Like that's just an easy one. Well, Brad, I, I don't want people, I don't want my wife thinking that I'm Mr. Holier than thou now because I'm suddenly, you know, I was at home, you know, being grouchy with the kids and now I'm like lifting my hands and, and my wife's going, what a hypocrite. Um, you know what? There's, there's one time you, you maybe should not be worried about what your wife's thinking. Only one time. And that's when you're in church before God. Um, and I think your wife will forgive you. At least she should, wife, forgive him if he does that. You know, if he's lifting his hands in church, that's a good thing. Even if he did, was grouchy with the kids on the way to church. Um, but lift up your hands. And the Bible makes that, it's just kind of an easy thing we can do. And some of you are like, it's like you get to church, like I gotta lift my hands at church. That's the attitude of Malachi's people. We gotta do bread at the table. We gotta bring a lamb, so where can we find a scratched up old half alive lamb? Like that's the way these people were and that's the way people approach worship today. And I don't wanna be God's chosen frozen. I'd like Athey Creek to be the church that's alive. And when we sing songs on a Sunday, I hope you Wednesday nighters, I, I kind of trust that some, sometimes, I, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I kind of get a sense that the Wednesday nighters, you're the few in all those five services we do on Sunday. Um, I think you're some of the few that are like, okay, we're gonna lift up our hands in church. And I hope you guys do that um, before the Lord, but also, man, to be an example, um, you know, to the believers and what we're supposed to be doing. I remember when Athey Creek first started, 
Um, we were at the school and we had like 10 people and little blue chairs. And, and I mentioned this, lifting hands, but everybody that there had never been to a church where they actually lifted hands. And so I, I talked about, we're gonna lift hands when we sing this song. And nobody lifted their hands. And I, I didn't know what to do. I was like, should I stop the song and say, now wait, did I stutter? Like, I just told you what the Bible says, and I almost did that. Well, um, then, this was great, this is great. One of my old buddies from Southern Oregon walked in a little late to church that day. And uh, he, was, he was a guy, he was one of those guys, you know, it's in church, it's, he's, he's this big construction guy, and he's just this big you know, kind of monster, you know. Uh, but he kind of looked tough as nails. And, um, and he, he, I think he came up to Portland for like a, a job or something he was working on up here. But he stumbles into church right after I gave that admonition, sang the song about lifting hands. Nobody lifted their hands. And then that song was over and I went on to the next song. And this big guy um, walked in and, uh, and he sat right in the center in the front and just boom, lifted up his hands. And he, he's one of those, you know, swayer, like he was swaying, you know, washing the window, you know, carrying the TV. You know, he was like doing all of them. And it was so great because, because the, the, the AC Creekers were like, the new, you know, new, just 10 people that were there were like, oh, like he's, he means literally raise your hand. Like he was the model for them and, and it was great. And I went slowly in the songs, I started seeing people raise their hands. It was almost like he had to unlock it. Um, my words did nothing. And that's what some of you guys need to do is be demonstrating and be examples of the believers of what to do. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. These people, um, man, you might jot this down in your notes um, because they were given very clear, just like I said very clearly, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. That's very clear. But these people had very clear instructions of how they're supposed to bring their lambs. Let me just read you some of this Leviticus, you know, 22, 18 through 25. Um, you shall offer your own will, at your own will, a male without blemish. This is what Leviticus, uh, you know, uh, 22 verse 19 says. Um, he also says uh, in verse 21, whosoever offereth a sacrifice, peace offering to the Lord will accomplish a vow, a free will offering of beef or sheep. It shall be perfect and acceptable. There shall be no blemish, no blindness, no brokenness or maimed or having a, red, a wen or scurvy or scabbed. It shall, um, you shall not offer these in the Lord, nor make an offering by fire of them on the altar of the Lord. And he goes on and on. I mean, I can just keep reading. It's over and over in Leviticus 22 about what you should not be offering. And here are the people of Malachi's time were doing exactly the opposite. And, uh, and, the, and the Lord is acknowledging that. He's saying, what? You guys have defiled my, my temple. Um, and it's gonna get even more um, brutal and more uh, pointed here. So, uh, you know, for them, they had the book of Leviticus chapter 22. You and I, for the church, we have the book of Acts and the epistles of what we should be doing in church. Um, and so the church, we need to follow more of a biblical way and not go against the word. That's what these people were doing. They, they blew off God's word on how to worship. And so today, people are blowing off God's word on how to worship. So you see the churches with the, the you know, LGBTQ, TIA plus uh, flag flying proudly over their churches now. Um, that's exactly what Malachi's people were doing. They were saying, we don't care what God's word says. We don't care about his law. We're gonna just do what we're gonna do. And that's what these people were doing. Um, and we've seen that now for a long, long time. Don't be like that. We gotta, we gotta re reject the, the attitude that Malachi's day had. It's very much like what's happening today. So they were defiling God's table. Um, worship had become uh, something that was not, not fun for them. By the way, um, 
let's, let's take a look at verse 10. It says in verse 10, uh, who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do you kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts, neither will I accept an offering at your hand. Now, this is a tough translation. Uh, the King James kind of, it's a tough one here. Um, the ESV and NIV do a really good job with verse 10. I'm just gonna give you the ESV because it's, it's a good, this, this is really clear and this is what the Hebrew really is telling us. Oh, that there would be, there, there, there were one among you who would shut the doors, that is shut the doors of the temple, that you might not kindle a fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Um, this is almost like in modern days, if the Lord were to say, man, if you come to Athey Creek and you're doing it for the wrong reasons and your heart and attitude is all wrong and you're not doing what the Bible actually says about you know, going, why we go to church, and people can go to church for all kinds of weird reasons. Um, there's people that go to churches because it's a good way to you know, get to know other business people and have a network of people that helps your business. There's people that go to churches because they think there's maybe a chance to find a husband or a wife. Um, there's, there's people that go to churches because uh, you, know, uh, you, you might have more influence or, or you know, you're looking for this or that or the other. But be careful. The Lord says, I have no pleasure in that. Some of you go to church because your wife drags you to church. The Lord would say, don't even come. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. When you come to church, the idea, we learn from the Old Testament, really something that we should do in the new. By the way, there was a New Testament church that had the same problem of Malachi's time. It's Revelation 4, 11. Remember the seven churches to Asia Minor? Um, there, um, you know, it's interesting because um, in Revelation 4, 11, um, it tells us why we exist. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were uh, created. Um, and then we were created for his pleasure. And, and what pleases the Lord? Jot this down in your notes, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. I call this the spiritual salad or the church salad. Why do I call it the church salad? Well, it says, let us. <laughs> Number one, let us draw near with a true heart. This is how you approach God. This is how you go to church. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Second part of the salad, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And the third part, let us consider one another uh, to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So when the Lord spoke to the seven churches of Asia Minor, one of the worst churches on the list was the church of Laodicea. And that church of Laodicea, why don't you flip there real quick? Why don't you grab, keep your finger in Malachi and go to Revelation 3. Because man, talk about a parallel here. I see a huge parallel. And, and this helps us with more of a uh, you know, New Testament application of the Old Testament book of Malachi. It's Revelation 3 verse 14. It says this in Revelation um, 3, 14. It says, and unto the angel of the church of Laodiceans, I write, these things saith the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither uh, cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. 
Because thou sayest, I am rich and have increased with goods and have need of nothing and, and, and knowest that, uh, not, thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. See, they thought they were living large, just like the people of Malachi, just like the people right here in our day. We're, we're the rich ones of the world. But he says, you're wretched and miserable, poor and blind and naked. He says in verse 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried with fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed that, thou, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thy eyes with salve in the midst. Um, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. Um, man, the Lord gives a really strong word here to the church at Laodicea. Um, and so this idea of lukewarmness, sort of going through the motions of religiosity, but not having a real heart for the Lord. And, um, and that's, that's always a bad deal. Uh, do I have any Star Wars fans here? A few, okay, all right, all right. Um, um, question, uh, here's, the, here's the question. Um, what is the internal temp temperature of a town town? Somebody got it, lukewarm. Now, if you're not laughing, um, in Star Wars, Luke had to cut open a big animal that's like a space animal, and he had to sleep inside of it because it was freezing and snowy outside, and so it became, um, and, and you can get for your children this little sleeping bag um, uh, that's, that's, actually, <laughs> that's actually pretty good. So um, anyway, I digress. Let's back, get back to the real thing here. Sorry. Uh, number two, the defiling of God's table. That's what we see in 6 through 14. Now, verse, uh, uh, verse 11, let's keep going. Uh, back to Malachi. In verse 11, it says, For um, from the rising of the sun, even to the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. Now this, this verse is amazing. I, I think it's amazing because here's the Lord saying, you, you are my people, the Jews, and you've just totally lost it. But he's saying in some ways, good news, especially for us Gentiles, the Lord's predicting what would happen in the world. That if the Jews are gonna come and bring bad sacrifice and not really care about God, there's gonna be a bunch of Gentiles who are gonna do this um, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. And, 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 you, and you, know, you think, how, how is that gonna happen? Well, we know how that happened. Um, there's two possible fulfillments of this. Uh, the first fulfillment of this is possibly the church. Um, once the church came, the Gentile church grew all over the world. And this idea of the incense, when it says, incense shall be offered unto my name. Um, what is incense a type of, anybody? Prayer. And so is prayer ascending all over the world? Um, when you think about from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, in other words, all over the world, there's Christian Gentiles praying today. This verse has been fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ. Every, in every place, incense shall be offered in my name. Um, and so prayer from all the world. Yes, check that box. There's a second theory though, that, that this verse isn't just talking about the church. Maybe it's both, but it might be talking also about the millennial kingdom. And there's a couple reasons. Um, he's called the Lord of hosts again at the end of verse 11. And that's, that's the language of the kingdom, right? You guys and I, we've been studying this now for several weeks uh, in Zechariah, that he's called the Lord of hosts. And that's kind of a kingdom term that's given to the Lord. So some say this is gonna be ultimately fulfilled um, when the kingdom, when Jesus rules and reigns from Jerusalem. But regardless of which um, you know, one this is, we should be uh, offering intense, pure prayer before the Lord. That's what we Gentiles 
get to do. Uh, pretty cool. What an honor. Verse 12. But you have profaned it in that you say the table of the Lord is polluted and the fruit thereof, even his meat is contemptible. Um, he goes on in verse 13. Um, it says, and ye said also, behold, what a weariness is it. Um, and ye have snuffed, or maybe a better word, some of your newer translations might say sneered. Um, you have sneered at it, saith the Lord of hosts. And ye brought that which was torn and the lame of the sick, and you brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver which hath his flock a male, and voweth and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathens. Man, for God to have to tell, do you guys understand? I'm, I'm a great king. Like that's how bad it is. I'm a great king. Don't, don't bring defiled things, you know, to me. And if, if we're not careful, we can, you know, blow things off as well that are important when we come to worship the Lord. Um, jot this down in your notes. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, verses 23, 23 through 32. Um, uh, let me just, uh, you know, remind you what we were talking about last week. Remember when we were talking about the people that come to the Lord in communion and they come with an unworthy attitude? Remember we talked about that? Um, he said, for he that eateth and drinketh uh, the Lord's cup, we talked about this on Sunday, unworthily, um, he's guilty of the death and damnation that comes with that. He eats and drinks damnation to himself. Um, and that's something that uh, is so uh, sad, um, but it's part of what the church is supposed to be about. Remember in Acts chapter two, verse 42, what was the church really all about? The apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. That's what we should be all about. But these four things listed in Acts 2.43, do we approach like, eh, whatever, the communion table, or going to church, or Bible teaching, or fellowship. I'm not into fellowship. I see people sort of blow off all of these things in the modern day church. And uh, we, we've got to be careful about this. We need to make sure and make um, worship a priority. That's, that's the key. Um, man, I don't know about you, but I see um, my own tendency to sort of have that half-hearted uh, um, approaching of God. Um, it's interesting because I think that sometimes we're, we've almost fooled ourselves into more of the external and caring more about the external than we do about what's going on internally, attitude of the heart. Um, that's one of the things about like, um, you know, some of you guys have had to deal with the whole what you wear to church and stuff like that. Um, I hope that Athey Creek, one, one thing that if, if you're watching online, I get this a lot of times. By the way, I got a letter the other day that was kind of troubling. Um, I get a lot of troubling letters. Um, but one, this one was a bummer because this guy went on about how I was one of his favorite Bible teachers, even over John MacArthur, he said. Um, and uh, he said, but you started wearing those satanic shirts. And I, I thought, well, uh, there's only a few that I can find that fit. Uh, <laughs> But then he started to describe the shirts. He said, you, you with these pagan symbols and beer commercials and like he went on and on about these shirts. I was like, what is he talking about? And then he talked about the spider on that one and there's a spider on a shirt. And what it was is um, there was a, I, I realized which one he was talking about, the biggest one, the pagan one was one, I got this shirt that says H-I and then there's a shield with it. It, it kind of looks like a spider if you cross your eyes and blur your eyes a little bit, but it's actually an oar uh, and it's a, a fan, one of those like tropical fans and an oar. And the reason I like that shirt, honestly, is because we have a watch party in Hawaii 
um, that they, they um, sent me this really nice shirt from Hawaii. And they said, man, we, we watch Athey Creek here. We love you know, tuning in. And they sent me the shirt and I, and I like wearing it. So I wore that shirt and now I get a letter for me being a pagan. And he says, I refuse to watch a pastor that will wear pagan beer shirts and stuff. If you only know, I've never tasted beer in my life. I'm not a promoter of beer. If you've been to Athey Creek for more than 10 seconds. Um, but here's the thing. Um, here's the thing about that. It's funny because clothing is such a big deal to so many people, like what you wear on the outside. But God says, I look at the heart of man. Man looks at the outward appearance. Um, it's an interesting thing how people will um, make big deals out of stuff they shouldn't. And I would say to that guy who wrote the letter, I'm debating whether I should write him back because he said he doesn't want to watch me anymore. I'm like, okay. Because I don't really need that kind of criticism, honestly. Um, and if I wrote him a letter, I'd probably say something mean. Um, and that's not holy um, <clears throat> and right, because what he said was mean. But anyway, um, <laughs> so I'm wrestling with that. But, um, but you know what's funny is at, at Athe Greek, because we dress casually, let's, let's be, if we're going to err on the, on the one thing, who can, I mean, I don't think the Lord looks at our clothes. I really don't. Um, but I do know that he looks at our hearts. And man, that's where the people of Malachi's time, they came to worship and their hearts were way off and their actions proved their hearts were off. And that's where you and I <clears throat> can stand corrected ourselves to make sure that when we come to church, we come putting our pride down, being willing to worship the way God told us to worship. <clears throat> and that, that means actively, you know, with, with um, enthusiasm. I love the word enthusiasm. The word comes from a Greek word, entheos, which means uh, in God. The word enthusiasm means in God. In other words, it's something you do with energy and efforts because it's before God. That's where the word enthusiastic came from. So when you come to Athey Creek, I hope you're enthusiastic. We don't want to be God's chosen frozen, but I would challenge you once again, let's be lifting our hands, lifting our voices. By the way, I love tonight leading worship tonight because I, I just love it on these Wednesday nights where your voices just boom back on these Wednesdays. And I feel like, oh, this is like sweet. When we're lifting our voices all in unison together, um, I love tonight, you know, just singing out scriptures. What a great thing to be able to do. Um, but I love that. We need more of that at Athey. Uh, we don't want to let the, and, and you know what? Honestly, there's some services that are worse than others. Can you guess which one? Don't say it. You might be shocked. You might be shocked, but it, it really is an interesting thing. Like the worship team does five services every weekend. And, and it's not always the same service, but once in a while, like the lively service, that's always on fire and lively and people are singing. And that, once in a while, that'll be the dead service. Like what happened to that group? Like it's a weird dynamic that can happen in a church, but man, you, when, when you feel the spirit moving and your hearts are lifted up and you're singing, praise the Lord with enthusiasm, there's something that's very infectious about that. And I think it's preventative to keep us from the Malachi attitude of those people of that day. Eh, whatever, the table's defiled. I don't care about government. Let's bring in our junk and let's just not do what we're... And that's, that, that can be the attitude. Just checking, well, I went to church box. Uh, we don't want that ever at Athey Creek. I don't get that sense from Athey Creekers. I really don't. I love that this is a group that comes enthusiastically and ready to worship. Let's keep that up. Let's go, let's go bigger even and, and come before the Lord. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. It's always uh, enlightening and bringing truth to us. Um, we're thankful, Lord, for just the, the good reminder from Malachi, Lord. As we finish up this Old Testament, um, Lord, what, a, what an amazing journey it has been and so much that we can learn. 
Um, but Lord, I pray we wouldn't just check the Bible study box, but Lord, that we'd meditate on your word, like the song we sang from Psalm 1, verse 2, that as we meditate on your word day and night, we'll be like a tree firmly planted by the river of water. So give us that firmness, steadfastness to meditate on the things we've even talked about tonight. And uh, help us to remember those things and internalize those things. In Jesus' name, amen.